Welcome to The Get Together. It's our show about the nuts and bolts. The uh, bolts and nuts. The bolts and nuts. The meat and potatoes. The potatoes and meat. The fire and water. (laughs) Of community building. And I'm your host, Bailey Richardson. I work at People & Company with this guy. I'm Kevin Huynh. I also work at People & Company, helping people build communities. Woo! Each episode, we interview people who have built communities about just how they did it. How did they do it? How they do it. How they get the first people to show up. How did they grow to thousands more members? Today, we're talking to Tim Courtney. Tim was a part of a monumental shift at Lego. He's one of the key folks behind launching a crowdsourcing program for the toy company. For over seven years, Tim was the steward behind this program, Lego Ideas. It was a web platform that allowed super fans to submit and vote on ideas that Lego would later bring to market. If you've ever played with a Minecraft Lego set, a Big Bang-themed kit, a collection of women, the women of NASA with Legos, then you've probably got Lego ideas to thank. Mm-hmm. Tim is a lifelong Lego enthusiast, and he acted as the connective tissue between these super fans submitting their ideas and the business teams and designers at Lego HQ in Denmark. Not an easy task. Still, today, the Lego community has grown from 20,000 users in Japan, where they prototyped the program, to a global community now numbering in the millions. So we'll ask Tim about his experience creating this platform that allows all of those people to submit ideas, vote for ideas for the biggest company on the biggest toy company, not the biggest company, the biggest toy company on planet Earth. <laughs> the biggest company ever to be created. The biggest ever. company. Um, the world company. <laughs> no, they're a private company. They can't okay. be. They're not yeah. the biggest. <laughs> um, Kevin, what did you take away from our convo with Tim? Uh, from you know, from a, a community building perspective, I think. Tim's perspective about how the Lego Ideas community members are collaborators is what's really special. And I think that's something to listen uh, for throughout the episode. Uh, this, this idea of either customers or fans, not just being customers or fans, but true people that a company can work with to make ideas happen, to make the, you know, the experience of what they're creating uh, even better comes up a lot. You know, he acknowledges that at its core, Lego is a system of play. And at the end of the day, it's nothing without the imagination of um, Lego fans. Mm. You know, at one point he posits that Lego wouldn't be where it's at without these customers as collaborators. He talks about the listening tour that may have saved the company where they talked to a number of Lego fans and went to these adult Lego conventions. He talks about learning and tweaking the design process um, that Lego designers Use uh, and taking it into something that an everyday Lego fan could, you know, could tackle mm. in through the submission process. And he also talks about, uh, you know, the perspective shift at the company, believing that they set a standard for how they talk about and how they treat customers and how they make those decisions. Looking at them as collaborators, not just people to sell, you know, at to. And you know, this shift to see community members as collaborators to see that collaborative potential I think is hard for any community leader I think at the beginning you want to do a lot for people you want to host a great event you want to make sure they have a wonderful experience but I think it's especially hard within a company structure Mm. uh, where a lot of goals are set around you know getting people to do things and sometimes maybe like Lego ideas it takes a big project Mm -hmm. you know the launch even the prototype launch of a crowdsourcing platform to make that case for collaborating with the people you serve. Yeah. 
I love that. That's so good, Kev. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's funny hearing you talk. It makes me think of a conversation I had with Mia Qualiarello, who mm-hmm. was the first community manager at YouTube. Like when she started working there, it was like in a pizza above a pizza shop, and there was like I think like rats in the hallway. Yeah. Sorry, Mia. Yeah. You know, telling the juice here, but I remember her saying similarly, like these platform companies are nothing without the yeah. people. They're yeah. like an sh- empty shell. Yep. And Tim says something very similar about Legos. And it's funny how far we can get from that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and it's nice to always, always nice to talk to someone who has that perspective really firmly established. For sure. So let's jump in. Tim, I know that you're a lifelong Lego fan. Starting back like in 1999, you started doing collaborative stuff with other people on the internet with Lego, but I'm sure your love of Lego started before then. Can you just tell me about your first memory with Lego and why you think you were so in love with it from such an early age? I think like any kid, like I started off with like the Duplo bricks, like the oversized bricks, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, right. And I remember it was like mid-late 80s and one Christmas I got like the first Lego set I ever had with minifigures was this little black semi-truck, and it had a gray trailer, and on the trailer was a helicopter. So um, it had two guys, right, like the driver of the truck and the pilot of the helicopter, and that was my first, like, normal-sized Lego set. From there, it, like, exploded to be an entire city in my bedroom. How old were you then-ish? Like, do you remember? Uh, Six, seven, seven, something like that, right? So I had the basic bricks before, but that was, like, my first, like, minifigure set, Mm. like the town sets. We had a closet door, and my dad put it on sawhorses, and that was my Lego table. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. So, super, super dad. Right? And, um... And so eventually it was, like, filled with all the base plates. It was, like, four base plates across and, like, 12 long. And so I had, like, a police station, a fire station, a gas station, an airport, space shuttle, you know, marina. And what I would do for hours, I would just make these scenes. So I've loved Lego, like, really ever since I was a kid. And I never really stopped playing with Lego as I was growing up because I was, like, 14. It was 96. And... I got my first, like, internet connection, Mm. and I searched for Lego, and that just, it was a rabbit hole. And so that was, like, my first, like, window into the the outside world. You know, I I grew up in this, you know, kind of a tight-knit community, and and that was, like, my first kind of, you know, crack to the outside world where I can two-way communicate with people all around the world from many different walks of life, all super into Lego, but they're all different ages. That was, like, pre-digital cameras. So one of the things that I was... (laughs) God, it's crazy. So as I was reflecting on this, I remember like the thing that kicked it off for us was the people on this news group wanted to do a collaborative project. They're living Mm. all around the world. They're talking online. And some people would put up, like you would go and like take pictures of your Lego models with film cameras and then scan them and put them on your website. And what they said was, let's send these two minifigures in the mail to each other. And then you can photograph them with all your models, and you can add stories, and we'll collect those stories centrally, and then you can add, like, postcards or stickers or, you know, things you, mementos to the package as it goes, it just, Mm -hmm. you know, snowballs. And so I remember with this little project, people wanted to share the models they built, like, remember those Lego idea books? What is a Lego idea book? Not everybody Mm -hmm. knows. 
An idea book is where common elements from different Lego sets, but it's like all remixed into like all kinds of different things you can build. So it's actual mm. building instructions for things you could build versus just an inspirational picture, right? Mm. So the community wanted to create their own idea book and like I said, there's before digital cameras, so how are you going to share? Well, everyone kind of coalesced around this one really nascent Lego CAD tool that was like hmm. fan created and open source. It was called Eldraw. And there was the author of Eldraw, James Jessamine. He's living in Australia. Um, we're all communicating over email and listservs and Usenet. And James, tragically, he, um, he got the flu, and within a couple of days, he passed away. Man. So. That was a real, um, that was 97, and that was one of those moments where, you know, I'd been on the internet for like, I don't know, a year, and a lot of the people there were relatively new, or because of the time period it was, it's like PhDs and academics and like Silicon Valley people and stuff like that, and I don't think there was enough internet history at the time. Like, you're actually mourning somebody that you only emailed with. And so that was a complicated emotion, you know, to go to. But um, the community really rallied around that open source collection of tools around this LDRAW system. And as we moved on, I got together with a few of the more prolific LDRAW users and created this central site um, so that it was easier to find all the software and, like, download it and get started. Um, that became a book that I co-authored with a couple of the other community leaders in 2003. Yeah, and how old were you at this time? Because it strikes me that that's pretty young age for you to be writing a book. Yeah, the book was published I was 20. Wow, good for you. Starting fast. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, no starch press. They do a lot of the technical books, and they also, yeah, they're, they're here in San Francisco. Awesome group of people, and they've pioneered um, not just coding and, and sort of STEM books, but they were one of the first publishers to really embrace publishing about Lego. Hmm. Mm. The point of that all really to share was, you know, I was really involved in that online community before what I think a lot of people think of when they say community today, but also just to illustrate that for many people, they play with Lego as a kid and they go off and do other things and then they maybe have kids of their own and they start getting back into Lego as a mm. hobby, as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, and I just didn't have that gap. Really, I had, I had the gap when I left college and started my early career when my amount of time, free time that I had shrunk. And so I really put it on the shelf then, but I stayed in touch with a lot of friends in that universe because that was a lot of my friend group. You know, by then I had traveled around the country, even to Europe, you know, going to some conventions and work with these people on projects. So I'll, this was a significant part of my social network. And I, I stayed in touch with those people. And that led me to the heads of the, you know, at the time, the innovation lab at Lego, who was launching this program that eventually became Lego Ideas. They invited me to work with them on the pilot project. Yeah, and so if before we jump into the Lego ideas piece, I hadn't really I I my brother used Legos, so this might be a gender thing going on with the original history of, of who uses Legos and who doesn't, but I was less exposed to it. And so I'm wondering, can you just describe you worked on this thing called Lego Ideas for seven years. I saw that you helped it grow from about twenty thousand people who were participating to in the millions or over a million. But Lego Ideas is a really interesting crowdsourced platform that Lego launched. And can you explain what it is and also how a company like Lego, which I think is traditionally a pretty private company, decided to open itself 
up to a crowdsource platform like that. So yeah, just give us the uh, what is Lego ideas and then how the hell do they decide to invest in it? Yeah, so um, Lego Ideas is um, it's a website for Lego fans that are 13 and older. Um, you can go and share an idea for a Lego set. And if it gets enough votes from uh, peers, from other Lego fans around the world, then it will go into a design review where experts at Lego from product designers, um, marketers, um, even you know, so far as supply chain, will evaluate it and say, hey, does this make sense for us to release as a product on the shelves. Hmm. So what's happened with that is every year, you know, four or so products will come out of Lego Ideas that are designed by a Lego fan co-creating that with a professional Lego designer. And so there's this product line that's emerged that is totally fan-inspired. And what you'll notice, if you go into a Lego store and you see the Lego Ideas, it's not really a section, but there's usually four or five of them on the market at once. And they're all different from each other. Yeah, tell us about a few of them that are like very memorable for you or that just come straight to mind. Yeah, absolutely. So this is reaching way back, but the first one that I got to work on was Lego Minecraft. Oh, cool. So now it's um, now like Lego Minecraft is a huge product line, a part of the assortment. But back in the day, it was like this one little box that, and we called it Micro World, and it was this micro scale, like the little Steven Creeper were like two or three bricks. And so that way we could pack tons of Minecraft DNA into, like, the smallest amount of Lego to keep the price point down, you know, and it's just, like, really cute, you know, kind of almost, like, chibi, you know, style to it, and it's it's modular. You can kind of tessellate it out, you know, infinitely. Mm. Um, Because we were such a small team at that time, you know, I was really, really hands-on with that, and also the communication with the fans that were involved with us, um, as well as the Mojang crew at the time. Like, it was just this little all-hands-on-deck family, you know, sitting over there in Denmark, Mojang's in Sweden, you know, we all talk about making this cool Lego Minecraft product, and it, w- it was just really a lot of fun, so I'm really proud to have had a hand in, in that one, but other ones that people are really going to remember. So, let's see, a lot of times there's like 80s IP nostalgia, there's the Back <laughs> to the Future um, DeLorean, there's that Ghostbusters car, if you're really into Lego, like you're a hardcore Lego fan, you're going to remember things like the exosuit, which had like the first time we ever did a space guy in green. Uh-huh. But then more recently, you've got the Saturn V and you've got the women of NASA. Cool. So the women yeah. of NASA is like the four vignettes, right, of the women with like the space yep. shuttle and the Hubble telescope. Mm. And, and um, yeah, so that one's super memorable, right? How did they do That's the awesome. flux capacitor on the DeLorean? Um, it was just printed on a, yeah. uh, on a brick. Yeah. That's um, <laughs> special brick. Tim, can I ask about, you know, what it means to be a Lego fan? Because, you know, I remember as a kid, like, playing until literally, like, my fingers were bleeding, you know, being what? with a friend. Are you serious? And get, no. Yeah, getting, like, the cuts under your finger from, like, trying to yeah. tear across the blocks and then trying to wow. use your mouth. and You haven't, you haven't built until you bled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, and then you kind of described that a lot of folks, you know, like me, they, they, they press pause at, at some age, and, and you did it, and I assume with a lot of the... Lego fans, they, like, it sticks with them. You know, what is it about, I guess, Lego and even as you get older, that's sort of, like, magical? Like, what makes a fan a fan? That's a really deep question. And it's, Lego is just such a basic uh, uh, medium, and it's infinite in its possibilities. And that sounds, I know that sounds super cliche. The company actually calls it uh, the system in play. So it's a, it's a mm. system, all the pieces from today work with all the pieces from 30 years ago. Wow, yeah. yeah. 
and and that's not that's not common with a lot of you know a no, lot of things that not. come with play. You know, it's like PlayStation is the exact opposite. <laughs> and and if you if you start to dig into the company's history, like that was a really intentional design decision on the part of the owner family and the mm-hmm. designers at the time. Um, and that really came about, they were really coming into that in the 1960s and 70s when they made some of those decisions that still influence the direction of the product today. And the times the company's lost its way, it's, it's deviated from that system. And what's got them back on track is like kind of getting back to the core of what Lego is. But to go back to your question about like what makes a Lego fan a fan, yeah, about the who. it's... Um, you know, these are is people who are like technical and engineering minded. I mean, I think it's both introverts and extroverts, and I think people will interact with Lego for different reasons. For me, it's I think I kind of ride the fence of both, and so I I go into my own head and I like to build and imagine things. But then it's also when I socialize, I like to be socializing around an activity, mm-hmm. and so it's a fun activity I think to do when you're with other people. Lego as a collaborative medium, you know, it's just fun. You can, if you get stuck, you can talk to somebody else, or it can be a totally personal thing and a relaxing. Like a lot of people say that they are into Lego because it helps them de-stress. Some people will build like elaborate spaceships or city layouts or things like that because it's a they're creating a world they can control. There's kind of no one size fits all. Everyone's into it for different reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I see the arc with kind of what you described, playing with Lego and then, you know, cracking open the internet and uh, starting to find other Lego fans. The, the founder of Meetup um, had this quote at a, a workshop, or you know, saying like, you know, people come for... Uh, the thing people come for the activity, but they stay for the people, and that's great. It, I, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Excellent. And I see how Lego as an activity in isolation, and some people keep it that way, but then others, when they kind of have a desire to, you know, share that activity, do something that's a little bit better together than it is alone, and um, through that process, get to know others, and then those relationships stick with you. Um, sometimes going beyond the activity, as, as you said, some people like even you when you took a pause, you. Uh, continue to have those relationships that you had developed through the activity and, you know, made your way back into working on the activity also with those people again. Yeah, absolutely. We go into companies all the time and some companies sort of have like this community in their DNA. I would say that uh, Creative Mornings, which Kevin used to work for, it literally is a community powered (laughs) company. You can't spread it if people aren't opening new chapters. But Lego as a company could just continue to sell at people and not bring them into the process and be fine. I think they're like the number one toy company on the planet. So what got them to say, let's make this space collaborative and kind of reciprocal with some of our big fans? Can you explain how they got Jedi mind tricked into doing that or what they decided was the strategic approach for investing in Lego ideas? One, that's a great question. I could, I could probably tackle it from a few different angles. One, I, I kind of want to, I want to challenge one of the points you made before um, diving in, and that is they could keep selling at people, but I, I, I would posit that Lego's outsized success today 
is because of the community. It's because of the adult fans. It's because of embracing them. That is maybe within the four walls of the company. Uh, you know, not a universally you know accepted thing. But having come up through that group of people and then worked on a digital and and physical product that serves those people, I'm absolutely convinced of it. Um, Hell yeah, love that. Lego dude. could be where it is without embracing um, hmm. you know its fans. And if you look at like what Lego bricks are. You know, it's an open it's an open medium. It's a blank canvas. You can't sell like nuts and bolts or and boards. You know, Home Depot couldn't say, well, like, like why are you doing all this crazy stuff with our products, right? You know, why are you building houses with it? Like, I didn't want you to build that kind of house, right? How silly, how silly would that be, right? And, but they could just keep on selling boards and screws at people, right? Mm-hmm. And like, what make them put them into bins? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, think about that. Like, Lego is an expressive medium, fundamentally, mm. and people are going to remix it. Mm. But there was a real inflection point in the company's history, and that was in the early 2000s. There was that online community that formed in the mid-90s. In, that you in were Eustet. part of. Yeah. I was a part of. I think it was, like, a year or two prior to me finding it um, was when those news groups started. And it was really starting to gain um, momentum, and it really picked up where people started meeting up in person increasingly regularly, like 98, 99, 2000. And these would be like across the U.S., 50 people would show up for a weekend at a place. And, you know, now it's conventions with over a thousand, you know, conference attendees and 20,000 like family, you know, public guests, right? So it's huge. And there's hundreds of events like that today, but it used to be this trickle. Early 2000s, the company really got away from that core. Remember I talked about like what Lego is, it's the system in play. And they started, um, well, you know, hey, kids are really into technology. They're not playing with physical toys anymore. Let's do computer games and let's put our brand name on something that has nothing to do with us, like a shoe. They had these action figures. And I'm not talking about like the Bionicle where you really like put them together with like gears and pegs and stuff like that's also a system, right? Bionicle Mm -hmm. is, is... fundamentally within the realm of that Lego system in play. There are these um, action figures where it kind of looked like a G.I. Joe type thing, but you could like take their arm or their leg off. And I remember sitting in that community group and looking at this kind of stuff, and then they were dumbing down the bricks themselves. So they were combining bricks together into one mold. So like you would make five pieces to make the front of a car, and like here's this piece, and it's got headlights printed on it. Um, mm. And so there was this like thing that like oh the young kids don't want to do these complex things. We're going to make these pieces simpler. Well, that combination of getting off into other product lines, losing focus, and then like dumbing down the product line caused three years of successive losses at the company. And they're privately held company. So really that that kind of put them into a a crisis mode. And what I remember is the owner, the third generation owner, Keld, he installed a new CEO, Jorn V. Knustorp. And Jorn has been the CEO. I think he was there 16 years and now he's executive chairman. Um, So Jorn's really responsible for that turnaround. They went on a listening tour. They went to business schools and they went to adult Lego fan conventions. Good for that. And they said... Yeah, and so they said, um, hey, you know, we're from Lego, and these are the problems we're facing. You know, tell us what we should do. And they listened to MBA students, and they listened to hmm. the core Lego fans. Cool. And, you know, probably other people, but those are the stories that I know. And 
you know, from that, the feedback was, you know, hey, your product is getting too simplified. You know, some of the stuff isn't even Lego, but you're putting your name on it. And what they did was they got back to that core brick. And so right after that period, you know, like the three-in-one sets you see, like it's like all trucks or it's all animals, right? Mm. The predecessor to that uh, called Lego Creator came around that time, and it was... It was just like that. It was like ideas for like animals or trucks or airplanes, but they were like a similar color palette. So like this would be like shades of green with like a couple accent colors and the other one would be like red and dark red and like whatever. So it really got back to like, hey, there's all these things you can do with these bricks and they built out from there. So when you fast forward to like 2008, when the predecessor to Lego Ideas, which was called Lego Kuso, um, Kuso is a Japanese company that was doing crowdsourcing with brands in Japan. They got together with Paul Smith Meyer, who is the head of the new business group at Lego at the time, and and Kohei, who's the head of Kuso, you know, p- basically pitched Lego on doing this crowdsourced product community. And it was a pilot. It was, when they launched it, they launched it in Japan and Japanese only because they had no idea what was going to happen. You know, this could, you know, go gangbusters or it could totally flop. And they needed to contain that to what was a small market for Lego, but also from a PR, you know, point of view, they weren't a victim of their own success or a colossal failure, right? Do you know how he pitched Lego? Do you know what, um, yeah, was it in the spirit of this sort of... uh transformation because it seems like they were returning to maybe the kind of like uh the essential ingredients of of what makes lego lego and doing this at the same time i think i saw the original presentation once Mm -hmm. but i can't remember and it's been a while since i've talked to you know either paul or kohei but they they had to build a relationship and build up trust over time like you said lego somewhat of a closed off company you know has that um, everything inside of Lego is like super secret, right? Yeah. So you have to build that trust, and and the brand is very valuable, and they're very careful what they do with the brand. And it was a pilot program, and I think it was a pilot program for three, four years on after they started it. So just say uh, you guys did a pilot program, and it's in Japan only. So at what point did you end up getting brought on to help with the program? Tell us about how you sort of created an official relationship with this thing that you had loved so much. So I was hanging out at the Lego convention in my hometown, Chicago, and my buddy Christian, who was the number two guy with the innovation lab at Lego called New Business Group, he was like in and out of town that day, and like Paul was in like the next day. And we had this little informal tradition where they were working with Adam Tucker, who did the um, Lego architecture. Mm -hmm. So if you know Lego architecture, he's the entrepreneur who proposed Lego architecture and built that. So they would sit in the bar. They would hide away from, like, the masses at the convention and napkin sketch that out. And I would just hang out with them and have a beer. And I knew I wanted to do more with Lego. Like, I knew it was more than just a toy. And... It was a a creative medium expression. You know, I don't know if I wanted to do art, a business, work for the company. So I was kind of like, I know I want my life to be more formally about Lego, but I don't know what that is. And that was the theme of our talks the last, you know, the years prior. And then I would go and, you know, a year later I'd see them and we'd have the same conversation. So Christian said immediately, you know, Tim, what are you doing for work? And at the time I was... um, 
I was in a role that it was like a um, um, 30 person app development company. The job had run its course. I saw the world differently than the two brothers who co-owned the company did. And it was time to move on. So, you know, at that point, it was really just a matter of timing. It was, I had a side project, a convention that I was running that had to wrap up. And I said, as long as I can do this, then depending on what the role is, I'm happy to join. You say that so casually. When I got an email from Instagram and they're like, do you know anyone who would want this job? I was in a similar situation and I was like, me. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I was like, I want this job. Yes. (laughs) Did you play it cool or what's the deal? No, actually, at first I didn't. I recovered. Um, <laughs> I can't remember because I passed. Really, it was like it was. I think I think it was something like Christian. I hate my job and I'm about to quit and live on my credit cards. Yeah, um, I, I I actually really think those words came out of my mouth. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Worked out, I, dude. Honestly. I recovered. I recovered from that, but uh, but yeah, that was the first. It was like totally, and that I mean that was a testament to the relationship that we had too. Yeah. That like I could say something like that, and they actually, I mean, still it was a it was a great position. It was definitely a couple of steps up from where I was. Um, it wasn't like that was a total like shoot myself in the foot moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems like the opposite. I think honesty does go, goes much further in business than anybody likes to say. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> so, you know, Kevin and I realized very soon into our friendship that my first day at Instagram, your first day at Creative Mornings, and like a bunch of other people that I've talked to who have done something like a community role with a thriving group of people, my first day was like answering emails. It was like an inbox full of things. And people like reaching out and I was like, hey, you know, (laughs) I guess we need to talk to these people. There's a lot of energy. What was like, do you remember what your first uh, projects were, first responsibilities were? Like, what was the the job like in the very beginning? Wow. Um, You know, in the beginning, I think when I, when I, my contract officially started, I was, one, it was a six month contract to start because again, like I told you, it was a pilot and I took that risk. I'm like, I can get Lego on the resume, I can get a little travel, and I'll take the risk of six months because I already told you how I felt about the previous job. And so it was two weeks out I was scheduled to go to Denmark. So I had gone to Denmark for like a half-day meeting. It wasn't even really an interview. It's like, here's what we're doing, and oh, let's glance at your resume, mm-hmm. and then let's negotiate you know, your rate, and then we'll go from there. And so then I promptly like flew back Uh, Sunday night I arrived. I was living in Chicago, but I stayed at my parents in the suburbs because my job was in the suburbs. I, you know, I wrote my resignation letter on faith. I didn't even have paper from them Mm. because I trusted them. And I'm like, pinky swear you're going to actually give me a written offer. And I resigned. And then because they needed me to start right away. Mm. The first two weeks was like, I wasn't even, I didn't even have like a Lego computer. As I was scheduled to go back to Denmark in like two weeks out. Mm. So I'm sitting there on my own computer and I'm just, I'm like, I'm just going to look through this website and I'm going to, you know, mark up the user experience and some of the copy. And, and I, I felt like super guilty because there wasn't a whole lot to do. Well, no, they probably had no one ever do that kind of work before. So you're far away from headquarters and one of the first people probably figuring out how this works for Lego, right? Yeah. And I mean, I have a background of the community and they already went through with me like what they had done up to that point. And like three days before I started, they put a press release out saying like, now it's in English and like, we're launching this blah, blah, blah. So people's posts started trickling in. There was definitely like, I found a few 
you know, what's the, the saying in, in Silicon Valley where it's like launch before you're ready? And it was like <laughs> definitely a case of that. It was like, if I had been employed here four days earlier, I would have delayed the launch by a couple of months. <laughs> 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 um, they dropped you so in was, the deep end. It really was. And it was about it was about a year and a half of like firefighting, hmm. to be like brutally honest. Things that were from a platform perspective, you know, not quite complete um, for the number of people who were coming through, clarifying the rules of engagement, the kind of the scope of what people could submit to the site that had a chance of being a product. And when people I'd known for years, you know, in the community found out, oh, it's like Tim behind this thing. The company was still rebuilding trust with the core fans from like the like five years prior with like, mm. the crisis and getting away from the, the product and stuff. And people initially distrusted the program. Mm. And it also didn't quite look like it was Lego because it was on a subdomain of Kuso. Mm. And people wondered if it was really the Lego company. But then they found out that I was involved with it. You know, those those that knew me, right? And it was about listening to people, letting people know that like things aren't working optimally right now, but I'm on it, and having a lot of um, difficult conversations inside of the company to balance all of the different stakeholder interests. I think a lot of things that are uh, have momentum like that, you are kind of firefight. I mean, that feels like in line with my mm-hmm. personal experience. But tell me a little bit about the growth, because... It seems like you went from one market to English, including the United States. Was there fast adoption or was it challenging? Yeah, tell me about how the platform expanded while you were there. Yeah, so initially um, it was a trickle. We carried over about 20,000 users from the Japanese pilot. So they were mostly speaking Japanese. And Mm. as it switched to English, their involvement really dropped. Mm. And that was eventually replaced by you know, half American users and then, you know, majority English speaking countries or countries where English is a second language is pretty common. You know, think about the places in the world where Lego is really popular, right? And so that was to be expected, but also people didn't know what was possible or like a product hadn't mm. come out of it. There were a couple of products that came out from the Japanese pilot, but they were like just hitting the market, mm. right? And they were only sold, the first one was like only sold in Japan. So Mm. if you didn't know about it, or it was like, hey, this exclusive thing you can't get outside of Japan. So it was really until I think the Lego Minecraft box came out that there was a lot of uncertainty around like, what does this actually mean? Within the community. And then they got to see, oh my God, an idea is shipped in a box. Uh Uh-huh. But if you think about like, the more you know about Lego fans, there are these archetypes, there are these even subcultures within the Lego subculture, like people who build elaborate cities and trains, and people who build spaceships, or you know, kind of those Lego play themes. There's a whole subculture that builds like just military models, Mm. or architectural things. And so everyone like really wanted their own interest to be commercialized Mm. as a Lego set. And when the Minecraft thing came out, Minecraft was just getting popular by like a lego purist it was almost looked down upon right oh it's this game these kids are playing but like you know it's just a cheap knockoff of lego that was kind of the attitude right and and kids really into it like why is this a thing when like my really awesome super detailed train engine is not yeah (laughs) you know you're dealing with a lot of existing (laughs) stakeholders yeah i'm I'm realizing that now like you're dealing with a lot of people have a lot of really strong opinions about absolutely what you guys should be doing so yeah i one of the things that i love about the program 
is the voting model. Like just to expand it a little bit, the way I heard it described was you can vote on the site with the intention that like your vote is basically saying I would buy this. Like I would back this almost like, you know, I I'm on this team. Um, but how did you guys uh, tell me a little bit about how you approached managing the fact that, um, it's a little hunger gamesy out there. Maybe like a lot of people want their, uh, want their box made. Oh, it is. I mean, there's a period of a couple of years where we call the guidelines in the house rules. The guidelines were like, what can you submit here? And the house rules are like how to behave toward each other. Right. Mm. I feel like every community has that. Like people talk about now, now it's popular to say code of conduct, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. There were a couple of years where we were really just tweaking that. And very intentionally in the beginning, the, the team and I were insistent that the brief for what you could submit stayed as open as possible because the voting was meant to be a filter for we're not going to consider something. We're not going to like really intellectually engage with would this thing become a product until you get the required votes. So that was a filter in and of itself because as we started getting hundreds or thousands of submissions and people would write and they would say like, can I submit this thing? And I'm like, well, if it's not totally inappropriate, like go ahead and submit it. And if you get the votes, then we'll have a conversation. Right. And there were even some borderline things where people asked me and I'm like, yeah, go submit it and get it voted on. And then all of a sudden, it's on Conan O'Brien and the service crash. And, <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> um, like the Shaun of the Dead thing uh, that we didn't make. Um, it was like, yeah, it's a little bit much, hmm. you know, for us. Um, so there was a couple of years where we really just tweaked from a values point of view and also from a what is practical to make in a, you know, in a Lego kit within the time frame people expect, you know, within the business case. And so developing this review process and, you know, how we communicate about it, now it's largely stable. I think it's been a couple of years since there was a major change to the guidelines. And I think mm. it's pretty well ironed out. But it was a huge learning curve. And then it was also setting the expectations of the community members for, you know, what to submit, what's appropriate, or what's practical or what's what's possible mm. and you know also like how to behave toward each other so one of the issues was you've got so you said earlier like a lot of stakeholders and that's a really good way of looking at it i have a slide internally that i used to share about all the different like there's there's an individual fan as a stakeholder there's the community of fans and that's almost another entity right there's like mm. what's the community will um or the consensus and there's other stakeholders within the business, and then there's, like, corporate leadership, right? Yeah. And so that's the kind of... And there's the general public. So the general public is not the same as a Lego fan in the Lego community. There was an, an incident where there was some drama, and it was around the theme of, like, plagiarism. So within the Lego mm -hmm. community, there's almost an unwritten honor code of, like, if you build something and you borrow heavily techniques or whatever, you credit people... Obviously, you're always learning from each other, and you can't infinitely credit people who like combine bricks in a certain way. But if you're largely building the same thing, mm -hmm. there's some um, ways people handle that. And so there was some drama around that, and the backlash from it was uh, an inflection point for me because I realized having grown, literally grown up in this community, and now watching our audience grow on the site, seeing the reactions that came back over the internet were... There was the connected community. There were like people who read the same blogs. They were in the same forums, in per like physical clubs or conventions. So they all kind of knew each other. 
And while there's diversity of thought in that group, there's some accepted norms. And then beyond that was this like tsunami of criticism from this faceless internet audience of like YouTube watchers, right? Mm. So the people within that quote, when I say community, the self-identified hobbyist community, they were like, oh, well, that, that's a bad look. You know, what's going on over there? But we know Tim, we know the team, or they're one away from, like their club leader knows us, or like we've been going to conventions for years. I'm like, well, it was probably a big deal if they made such a decision, right? And hmm. the general comments were, faceless corporation, you guys are meanies. Um, you know, you suck. Hmm. And like calls to the call center and stuff like that. Hmm. And it was just a really, it was a really stressful time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it was a real learning experience to like, okay, this thing is like bigger than what we think our community is. And so there's like the in-group, right? There's the people who are connected to each other and kind of share the same norms and values, um, and even conversations on a regular basis. And then you have people from outside that community too. And so the audience or the general public, it's also a stakeholder in your community. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What did you learn from... Um, sort of those years of tweaking the structure, right? You talked about the house rules as well as the submission guidelines and, you know, an executive director of a nonprofit I work with, she talks about sort of the power of the right amount of structure, right? You give the, the right guidelines, the right guardrails, the right structure, and someone has enough to like take up the challenge, uh, but they also have enough freedom to like fill it with their creativity, um, so I, I wonder tactically of all those years of sort of um, having a community that's really based on this activity of pitching ideas and supporting certain ones, what did you learn about trying to create like an effective submission process? If you were to give a one to two pieces of advice of another company thinking about creating some sort of like idea submission process, like what would you recommend to them with regard to that structure? I would, I mean, you've got to think several steps ahead. Hmm. So we, if anything, while we did eventually implement a lot of structure around it, we were purposely open and we very intentionally narrowed the brief down. Um, I don't think that that necessarily is going to work for everybody, but as the culture developed in the site, as there's dialogue with users, both in like the public comments and in support ticket emails, or even sometimes like a beer at a, at a con, right? <laughs> because you get a lot of input about what people think the rules should be. Yeah. So like use your community for feedback on what your rules should be. Because, I mean, they almost, they know the medium better than our team. Our team was like a business team, right? And a community engagement team. We weren't product designers necessarily like sitting in our team running this. Mm, yeah. So these are people who know the product better than we do. Mm. They know the culture of the community better than we do. And while you change a rule and you're, you're going to make some people happy and you're going to make some people upset. That's just mm. the way it works. But really like listen and think ahead. Don't knee jerk change a rule because it's convenient for like one set of your constituents hmm. when it might derail something else. Yeah, it's like respecting the fact that you are you're trying to empower, you know, a group of people with a magical idea, etc. Yeah, to submit it, to manifest that. And those ideas aren't coming from, you know, from the office, from headquarters. You're working with these people to figure it out. So you need to kind of co-design that structure over time to make it happen. There's a phrase that we kick around within the team that's oriented toward the adult community. And that's 99% um, of the smartest people in the world don't work for us. Yeah. As I interacted more with 
the product designers on the inside of the company and the the marketing leads, the project managers, and saw the they were like how the sausage was actually made. Mm. Lego is still like magical to me, but I think for a lot of people, it's rose-colored glasses. They think that there's this magical place in Denmark with unlimited money and unlimited Lego bricks, and all they have to do is put them into a box, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it just doesn't work that way. But learning the design process, I'm not a trained designer. And I took every opportunity I could to immerse myself with designers, even so far as to like going on a week-long ideation offsite um, with a design group, because I just wanted to learn how they did their jobs. And you know what I realized is that when someone's trained in that way, they are taught to like emotionally disconnect from their ideas, hmm. right? And yeah. generate a lot of them, and you know you don't want to you don't want to have like hey that's my idea that's your idea you put all the ideas out there and then they they merge and they split and they change form and like what you actually end up producing as a product is totally different than that idea you you attach to early on. Our community, our constituency is ninety eight percent lay people, right? Ninety eight percent non professional designers. And a lot of the role and the way we set up the program was how do we try to set people's expectations for, you know, what's going to happen and what they can do and what they can't do without expecting them to have that, you know, sort of pedigree and polish, mm-hmm. you know, to them. And I think a lot of the conflict points would come up because this is people who are there. This is their hobby time. This is their passion right? This is what they do when they come home from a stressful day at work and they're super into Lego plus like their favorite TV show or whatever it is. And they want to express themselves. And there's a bit of, um, there's definitely like achievement. There's definitely people who want recognition and they're all vying for a limited number of production slots, you know, too. So there's that. I mean, I think that that's a recipe for, you know, I mean, definitely some people to be disappointed, right? Um, we interviewed the founder of Instant Pot, uh, a man named Robert Wang. And weirdly, I think there might be some similarities uh, in that he built a tool that has really good bones and people use that tool to make all sorts of different things. And he's an engineer by trade. And for him, it was so obvious in listening to him that his team loved hearing how people were using the Instant Pot out in the world to make their work day to day in the office come to life and really like fill them with ideas that they could never even like QA themselves into seeing. And so the question I wanted to ask is how did the Lego Ideas community affect the people at Lego? You were almost like a conduit between the community and these designers that you spent time getting to know. Yeah, well, tell me about that and and how introducing this program has affected the company, if at all. In initially, I think that people inside who weren't really involved with the program saw it as something potentially disruptive. We've had our challenges and like growing pains, but over time, what I noticed more and more is the designers who would like angle for a role, like working on a Lego idea set. Hmm. So. 
um, there was one um, one designer who, like, for a couple of years, he was asking about being the, the designer on something that was, like, slowly making its way up the votes. Um, <laughs> and it actually did become, it was, like, his good friend. So it was Mark, Mark Stafford, the designer, and uh, Pete Reed, who was the fan designer. So Mark worked for us. He's friends with Pete. And when he's like, if you guys pick it, like, can I do it? Um, <laughs> and and that was the exosuit, like, the, the suit that became, um, like, that classic space with, like, the green figure. Because they're both, like, really prolific Lego classic space builders. One of them happened to work for us. Mm. And then over time, like, you get people who have specialties, like... Like someone really specializes in cars, other you know someone else is is really specialized in this certain kind of construction we call snot, which is like the studs facing not up, so the studs are not on top. Huh. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and like vehicles, so like built the Saturn V rocket because it's all huh. it's the snottiest snottiest Lego. <laughs> set we got the language going here. <laughs> And and what about for you? I mean, is there a story, someone you met, something you worked on there that you're really proud of or really affected you? I'm really proud of how we have set the standard for how the company engages with its most passionate fans. It's the ability to bring in, having come from that background, the ability to bring in empathy for who these people are and how they feel and how they express themselves and interface with other professionals at the company, colleagues who they love the brand, they love the company, but they just they just don't have that perspective, right? So to add that diversity of thought into the mix and say, when we make these decisions, this is how we're going to handle them because it closes a loop with someone, because it respects them, you know, proportionally to the level they've contributed here. You know, sometimes because it's just the right thing to do, because these aren't, like I said, these are lay people, they're not professionals, they're hobbyists, they're passionate about our brand. It's not like you, you know, internally, you just unceremoniously kill the project, reassign the designers to something else. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you've got to handle it with care, even mm-hmm. if you make a tough call. And really just setting a, like a set of standards that, that has been replicated and repeated through other programs. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really proud of that. The other thing that I'm super proud of is because I was involved with the project for so long, getting to know some of the key community members over years and interacting with them, whether it's over email or whether it's even meeting up at conventions and stuff and like multiple conventions over years. So you kind of become friends with them, watching them develop and like come into their own. I think that if Lego ideas uh, doubled down on like intentionally helping people develop, like these are the self-starters that like did it on their own, like found their, their peers and kind of like carved it out. There's so much more potential for that, but I'm really proud of the, um, kind of those core community members who use this as an opportunity to build their creative confidence, to build some social skills, presentation skills, artistic and and sales and marketing and analysis skills, and watching how that's affected them personally and professionally. Can you tell me about one of those people? Does anyone stand out? Yeah. Um, this morning I was just chatting with my friend Glenn in prep for this, and Glenn was one of our most prolific users for um, for several years. He wrote a blog almost every day about like analyzing hmm. um, Lego Cuso and ideas wow. um, and like the rules and stuff. and And he's the fan creator behind the Big Bang Theory set. So him and his friend Ellen, um, they did that together. Um, so he's had he's had one made, but he had several of them reach the vote threshold that that we unfortunately didn't make. He like taught himself social media marketing and automation and more analysis stuff. 
he's a, a software engineer by trade, but he really learned the people side of things, mm. you know, from this. And and so he, there's a story there. Um, Ellen, uh, she had two. She had the um, Research Institute. It's this, like, the vignettes of the women scientists, not the NASA one. Cool. And she had the, she was the other half of Big Bang Theory. And she was really, she started doing, like, speaking engagements and so it really kind of like opened, you know, her to like, she wasn't really trying to be like a platform for like women in STEM, but I think people wanted to hear that mm. perspective from her after doing the product. And so that's opened her up to like more professional engagements, you know, on those topics. Mm. So there's a couple stories right there. All right, Tim, anything that you want to share that you didn't get to say? One of the things that I learned from the journey because like when you're when you're like going through something, you know everything is kind of you're just putting one foot in front of the other, right? So um, going from like 14 year old logging on, finding a Lego community, starting your lead career, working you know working at the company seven years, and and now where I am, just kind of pausing and taking stock and looking at future opportunities. As I start to branch out and speak with people like you guys, over the years I've talked with other consumer brands who are doing things in crowdsourcing. Um, people often come to me for advice on community stuff. And I realize just how universal all of these principles are. And, you know, at the time, what I thought was, was really unique, you know, I've, I've been able to reflect back on physical and virtual communities of which I've been a part and the glimpses that I've had into other um, people's groups. You know, while you think your situation is unique, there's a lot of overlapping principles and there's a lot... I think that can be learned, success that can be gained and, and, and pain that can be avoided, I think, by talking through this and like learning about something that's maybe outside of your discipline. Mm. So um, I certainly learn a lot from your show um, and hearing some of the other groups that you've brought in. Um, and I hope that people are able to get something out of the story as well. Just one, one more question. Given that you've had some of those realizations about some universal principles that you realized applied at Lego and other places, you know, what's one that you would really, really underscore if you had to give people listening, you know, an edited look at, hey, if you were talking to you the week before you started working at Lego, what would you say, like, hey, this is the thing that you need to keep front of mind? Take care of yourself. Hmm. Community is awesome and exciting and euphoric at times, but it, like, it can really take you to your knees too. You're dealing with people's stuff, right? Um, community is not a top-down organization. It is people who are interacting and, you know, to whatever extent they do, living their lives in close contact with each other. And if you're um, a community manager or overseeing a community um, or trying to nurture one, people are going to come to you with their stuff. And so you've got to take some time for yourself. And, you know, whether that's, you know, turn the phone off, turn the computer off, you know, go for a walk. I, I, I took up flying for three years and there's a flow activity that you really can't think about mm. too much else, uh, while you're, mm. while you're doing that, right. Find, find a flow activity. And then, um, and then I picked up like Bikram yoga, you know, finding those things that can take your brain away from the work and away from the people and allow you to recharge. Yeah. yeah. Cause your people will benefit from it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think just to say, I mean, hearing your story, I also know what it's like to be in a big company and to go to battle for people who really, 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 really care about something that you're working on. Um, and we have a saying that's people who care are more powerful than people who don't. 
they just do so much more for you. And, and I think a lot of the emotional stress comes from the fact that you did something heroic and courageous, which is kind of go to bat for those people every day at headquarters. And, um, from someone who knows what that feels like just to say, thanks for doing it. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there in the Lego ideas community that didn't get to see you walking into all those meetings and repping them. But, um, I think it's good work into in the world that we're in today. So thanks for doing it. Great. Thanks guys. If you want to get to know Tim, reach out, hire him. Check out his website, timcourtney.net. Tim Tim Courtney. It's in Courtney with a C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y. Tim Courtney. If you want to find out more about us, people and company, you can visit our website, peopleand.company. You can learn about the sprints, the labs, the coaching we do with different organizations to help them get their people together. Also, if you want to check out our book, Get Together, you can go find that on the internet. Uh, On Amazon, just search Get Together or go to gettogetherbook.com. It's a handbook. It's, it's going to handbook. help you build your community. It's a handbook to help you build your community filled with stories and interviews and learnings. Okay. Final thing. We always like to just say, if you enjoyed the podcast, any reviews or subscriptions, clicking that subscribe <laughs> button. Yes, please. It's very meaningful. It really helps other people find the podcast yes. and we appreciate it. So My heart flutters with every subscription. Though Brian, I don't... our cameraman, have you reviewed the podcast? <laughs> no, I'm gonna he's going to uh-huh. do it though. There he says is. he's going to do it. You know, chapter two, do something together. All right. Enough begging. It doesn't look good. It's not a good look. We're signing off. All right. See ya. Take care.